If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how are you doing there it is podcast time we're going to talk today about Cuba Cuba John and I have both been tourists in Cuba I've been to Cuba maybe seven or eight times at this stage I first went in 1996 and uh, it was an extraordinary place then. I was there about two years, about a year ago. It's still an extraordinary place. We'll talk about that in a second. But obviously the issue is now there are protests in Cuba for the first time, proper protests about food, about having no money, about having no jobs, no prospects, etc. And for the first time since 1958, there is no Castro on the throne. It was Fidel first, then his brother Raul, and now they have a new guy called Diaz Callan, who just doesn't have the same umph as the Castros. He doesn't also have doesn't the have Callan kicks. Yeah, he just but he doesn't have the same link to the revolution. You know, he's not he's not a living embodiment. How old is he? He's a, in his fifties, I think fifties right. or sixties. He, he wasn't in the revolution. Yeah, yeah, he was a bureaucrat. So all to play for. But I mean, you've you've been down there, John, haven't you? I loved it. Myself, Al, and Joe went on a, an amazing road trip of Cuba. And you know, the amazing thing is that they have all these massive highways with no cars. They were built by the Russians for if the Russians wanted to yeah, land, land aircraft. Planes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah. the huge wide roads that go on forever and nobody on it. Yeah, it's it's amazing place though. It is absolutely fascinating. It is a it is a fascinating place, and and you know that Cal did his transition year there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah because yeah. Uh, I had I, I that had was the a making friend. of him. Yeah, no, it was, he, he loved it. He loved it. But I had a friend. Uh, the reason I had Desmond passed away last year and uh, died of a heart attack very very suddenly in Cuba and had been living. Actually, if you're into photography, by the way, Desmond Boylan, just Google his photography. He was an amazing photographer. Uh, he was a war a war photographer initially, and then uh, resettled in Cuba in the early nineties. But the reason he settled back in Cuba, he was a guy of Irish parents, born in Spain, looked like me, but spoke like, like uh, a Cuban, absolutely. And at the inauguration, think about this, of Nelson Mandela, nineteen ninety, 
yeah. as president of South Africa. It was actually 1992 when the elections took yeah. place. Desmond went down there to cover it for Reuters. And Fidel, of course, was a big friend of Mandela, Mandela yeah. because Fidel supported the ANC all the way through. Sure. Right? We forget that, right? Yeah, yeah. And Fidel was like pride of place. And because no one could speak Spanish, Desmond saw Fidel coming down the thing and roars at him, comedante, because that's what he liked to be called, yeah. and started speaking to him in Spanish. And there's a great photograph of Fidel taking a photograph of Desmond with Desmond's n- Nikon camera. Oh, really? Camera. Oh, yeah. brilliant. And Fidel said to him, why don't you come down? And he did, and he settled there. And he married Gloria, and they've a kid, Michael. Anyway, the, the story, I talked to I talked to Desmond when <laughs> Cal was doing his transition year, and he's saying, what's he going to do? And I said, I don't know. He might just mooch around here. He says, why doesn't he come down here? So the three lads, Cal, John, and Tom, went to yeah. school. <laughs> In Cuba, right? <laughs> and they arrived in Cuba, and I think they just went in the hop. For, of course for, they did, yeah. For, for, but, but Carl didn't have any Spanish at that stage. They had school Spanish. Right, But they learned okay. it very, very quickly. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, when you're in the thick of it, you pick yeah, it up. Yeah, and nobody, you have to. nobody speaks English down there. And I, I went down to visit them. So, look, I'd been going back and forth to Cuba because I've been fascinated by it for years. Yeah, I was there, I think, around 2000, 2001, something like that. You know, walking around Havana. There's beautiful architecture, yeah. all of that. But it's all faded and crumbling. And and that was 20 years ago for me. So it must be even worse now. Well, I tell you what you notice is on that issue, when we talk about why it had such amazing architecture, mm. like how rich. Well, basically, first of all, Havana was the biggest slave center in the world. So oh, let's right. Not, okay. Let's, yeah. not, let's not glorify how Cuba got rich. Cuba, Cuba was a huge slave trading center. And of course, then what happened was there's a great book called From Columbus to Castro which is the history of the Caribbean, written by the first prime minister of Trinidad, a guy called Williams. Okay, well worth a read, right? right. It's about this, the slave trade and, and the economy and the horrendous, what they call the Atlantic Triangle. So from England and Spain to West Africa, mm. to the Caribbean and back. Yeah. So basically, yeah. tatty manufacturing goods were sold for people in West Africa. The people were shipped across. They were sold for sugar and the sugar and... Went tobacco to and coffee UK. went back to the UK. Yeah. And, and Bristol being the main port, yeah. which is why Bristol and Liverpool have the oldest black populations in the UK. Yeah. yeah because yeah. because of the slave trade. So you have the, the slave trade, then you have independence from Spain first, then you have always got American involvement. Then, of course, what you have is in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, you have the Las Vegasization of Cuba. So Cuba becomes the American playground. And then, of course, then the mafia were huge in Cuba. Yeah. So they came down, they're running brothels and, and all sorts of things. And of course, the Batista was the dictator mm. in the 50s. A very, very repressive dictator, supported by the Americans. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the banana republic. He was planted there, was he? No, no, he was, he was a local, but he was, right. he was supported by the Americans. And what you find is, is that consistently there's been this movement all over Latin America called Bolivarism, after Simon Bolivar, yeah. who was the first independent leader in Latin America, taking them away from the Spanish. Yeah. So anti-colonial. And then, of course, Fidel comes in. He's trained in, 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 in Mexico. And it's very clear that Fidel didn't intend to be a communist leader. He didn't intend really? to actually ally himself with Russia. That's the interesting thing. He was much more in the 1950s a revolutionary independence right, guy okay. who was trying to take back control of Cuba away from this cabal which were supported by the Americans. Mm. But because the Americans reacted with the Bay of Pigs, JFK 
yeah. sent American troops in to try and kill him. I mean, they've tried to assassinate Castro thousands. There's a great museum. There's a museum for the assassination of Fidel in yeah. Cuba. It's all the various ways the Americans tried to, like exploding cigars and that crazy shit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. CIA stuff. But it's clear that the Americans drove him into the arms of the Russians, that he didn't necessarily begin right. by thinking we're going to have an alliance with Russia. Just a little aside, I drove down by the Bay of Pigs. And there's not much there, but we were driving down the road and we were kind of looking ahead and the road was moving and it was red. And it was the millions, literally millions of tree crabs coming down out of the forest, crossing the road. No way. And it's an annual thing and they spawn in the water. That's story. It's incredible. But like just the whole road is moving. So you've no choice but to drive over them. And it's awful. Like, yeah, it was just crunching all the way down for about a mile or two. That's weird. That's weird. Well, I mean, it, again, if you haven't been to Cuba, it is really a fascinating place. Uh, there in the 90s, I was starving. There was no food. Yeah. Then the 2000s starts to improve. Then what you see is they begin to liberate the economy in the sense they allowed like small pizzerias and little cafes. And they began this idea of opening up yeah. uh, the economy. And... Now, of course, then with Trump, you get a doubling down of the embargo. The Americans, really really vindictive stuff. It's really vindictive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Biden, of course, who everyone would have thought was going to be more along the lines of lifting the embargo or easing it, has actually... Like like Obama reached out, didn't he? Yeah, Obama did. Obama visited Cuba. Yeah. But uh, Biden, because he's afraid of losing Florida because that's the, such a key state for them. Yeah. They have genuflected to the Cubans abroad, the Marco Rubios and all those guys, who really want to strangle Cuba. So we're kind of at this extraordinary moment. It's weird, that, isn't it's it? It's really, really vindictive. But why don't we do this, John? Why don't we go and talk to Zoe Redmond, an okay. Irish woman living in a gorgeous part of Cuba called Vinales, get the view on the ground, and then we're going to go and talk to Marla, because Marla was the Cuban economist for the Royal Bank of Scotland. For years, so she knows yeah, Cuba okay, backwards, yeah. and she's from the region, and she can put it into context. And then we will see whether or not this is the end of the Cuban Revolution. So let's go and talk to Zoe. Our next guest is Zoe Redmond, and Zoe Redmond has been living on and off. He's married to a Cuban on and off for the last 15 years in Cuba in a lovely place, which I've been to called Vinales. And she's on the line now. Zoe, how are you? Very good. Thanks very much, David. Listen, uh, tell me about, I want to talk, I was just talking about Cal there being in Cuba, in Havana, but you're in more rural Cuba. What is it like day to day? Because we know what's going on. We know there's deprivation. We know it's difficult to find, you know, the basics. What's it like living day to day in Cuba? More recently, I think it it has got much more challenging. Not only, well, the whole world has got the COVID, so to deal with that, and then the economic problems, and basically it's the scarcity of food and the day-to-day. It's a hard graft, and it's down to the basics in terms of the hierarchy of needs. It's what to put on the table. It's not about self-fulfillment or happiness or anything. It's, you know, what's for dinner. Or is there dinner, really? Well, Carl was telling me, and again, I'm back referring, I, I asked him, what's, you know, what did you learn? You know, because, you know, all the slogans in, Q, in Cuba, you'd have, you know, hasta la revolución and all that good stuff. And, and I said, Carl, what did you need? He said, he said Dad, the, the word, the expression I heard most in Havana was, I pan, 
is there bread? Oh, yeah. And he was saying, look, that's what people were talking about in the street. Like, is there bread? Where is there bread, et cetera? And then he was saying it was it was very difficult. You know, explain to me the, what, what's it like to live in a country where food is scarce? What does it do to people? What do people talk about? How do people get on? Because what I've been always amazed about Cubans is how resourceful these people are. Oh, they're super. They're stoic. They're resourceful. They're inventive, you know, they're the best mechanics in the world. Their cars are made with bits of string. <laughs> Our house was built and, you know, we went up to the hotel to get two pigs to put between the tiles. Everything is, you know, nothing is thrown out. And, and that's super. And that's what I love about it. But the ordinary people of, of, of Cuba who don't have access to remittances abroad, the challenge is, you know, where do you find your rice? The farmers are selling less because they have to contribute more to the cooperative and they're keeping it for themselves. The beans, you know, the staple there will be rice, beans and and meat if you're lucky. So, you know, people are growing their own. They're trying to find pigs, keep chickens, have eggs. And, you know, and we're lucky because we're in, in a rural area. We can do that. I mean, I don't know in Havana how how people manage to get by. I know Martine's cousin has two pigs up on the roof in a flat in Havana. But, you know, and these are the things that, that people do. You know, you've heard that story of the pig in the bathtub. I'm sure you've heard that forever, you know. So, so uh, I mean, uh, people go out and now the stores have turned into US dollar stores. So you need foreign currency. Um, to be able to buy in them. And then when stuff does come in, there's queues for hours upon hours. And that's the reality of it. You know, you know, our chats with neighbours is, oh, shampoo's come to town. Oh, is there soap here? <laughs> or, you know, and you're uptown and you see someone carrying a bag and it's got crackers in it and you go, where do they come from? <laughs> you know, so that's that's kind of what it's like. And as I said, you know, I'm, I'm rich in a touristy town, you know. The last time I was in Havana, which was two and a half years ago, I really got the distinct impression of a massive, no more than in every country, generational gap between the older people who still spoke fondly of Fidel, of Che Guevara, of the, they even remembered Batista, or at least their parents told them about Batista. And they, they were really proud of the revolution, right? You could sense that when we were talking to them. But I got the real feeling that the younger generation, I'm talking the teenagers, the early 20s, very, very much the Facebook generation, they're online, they're reading about the world online, you know, they're quite different. They were quite different. They were quite ambivalent to the revolution. They wouldn't say it openly, but you could sense that they were. Do you think that's what's going on? Is that what has erupted a generation issue or, or is it something deeper? I think it's a generational issue and there's something deeper. Um, I think in terms of generation, everybody is proud of the revolution, is proud of what happened. And they're immensely proud of the health and the education and everything that has happened. But I think recently, um, the younger generation, I suppose, are seeing the difficult times again. And they don't have, they haven't lived that previous history. So what they're seeing is what they're not getting, which they're seeing on Facebook and on the internet. And then compounded as well with the, kind of squeeze of the embargo and the pandemia, it's made it unsustainable and people are, are just fed up and they want change. They just want to be able to dialogue. And it's the younger people and it's the artists, but 
Cubans don't want a lot either. They just want a little bit. You just want to be able to feed, feed your children. And they are totally sick of it now. And saying this now, they are sick of it. The younger people just are totally sick of it, hate Diaz Canel. They hate him. They used to, they love Fidel. They were too loyal to him. And then Raul started. They used to always say, Raul is not Fidel, like he's tougher. And now this guy, they're they're blaming him for everything. And they're and and the government are blaming the blockade for everything. So but it's got to a stage now before you couldn't say anything on the street. If you're in a small town like Vinales and you said down with Fidel, you're rounded up and thrown into prison and everybody knew. And people, someone put up a sign about two years ago and they knew who it was with all the informers. And, you know, but now Martin would say, oh, in the queue, people are actually saying what they think. And he's kind of shocked at it, you know. So people are voicing their uh, and that's what the protests are. They're going out now. I don't know how violent it is because there's two sets of news, you know. Yeah. And, you know, so one news is the official news and the other news is the rumor innuendo and the chat. Yeah, and the anti-government websites, you know, and the, the which apparently are all funded by NED or whatever, all these American propaganda things, which I don't, you know, you don't know. You don't know. Between between both of them, there's the truth somewhere. You but, know, there, so. but there does seem to be some sort of change, no matter how dramatic that might end up. There is something coming. Oh, yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. What we need to do is now, there's no leaders emerging you have a group of artists who sat down it started at the end of november when the artists did a sit down in front of the ministry of culture and then there's another crowd down in santiago who are, are trying to set up an opposite there's no opposition you see so the, so there's no leaders and no opposition so at the moment it could either turn into rabble and war and looting because people are hungry or you're going to need a leader of the opposition and you don't want an American puppet either, you know? So I really don't know how it's going to play out, you know? Well, we, will sure leave, anyway. we will leave it there. So that's fascinating. It's fascinating to just have an eyes on the ground report. Lovely to talk to you and take care down there. Okay, bye-bye. As you said before, Cuba is, is an amazing place to visit, but I'm not sure about living there. I think living there, I mean... Because she was actually quite nervous about talking, you well, know, being a, being a police state. It is a police state, yeah. you know, and it's funny, you know, when you look at how regimes end, they all end in different ways, but it's broadly similar. I remember in 1988, John, 1988, 21st of August, 1988, Yeah, your mate was on Wenceslas Square in Prague to observe, right, the 20th anniversary of the Prague Spring. Right. right, yeah, yeah. I know I'm an odd oddity. These are the things that I, you know, everyone else was going to fucking, I don't know, going to <laughs> Fela. Magaluf. Yeah, going to Magaluf or Fela. And of course, I ended up in Prague and I got the train down from Berlin, from East Berlin. It's yeah. an amazing journey through Dresden into Prague. Right? Dresden in 1988, just before the DDR collapsed, right? right? Yeah. Was still bombed out. They hadn't oh, really? rebuilt it. They hadn't rebuilt the center of Dresden. It was extraordinary. Right, and there was this old Deutsches Reichsbahn, which is the, the old East German railway. Yeah, and it came on. It was Germany gets so hot in the summer, really, that the European so it's almost the steppe heat. Yeah, right, it's yeah. roasting, roasting, and the train went about twenty miles an hour through Eastern Germany and then into Prague. And I arrive in the evening. You come up in Wenzel Square, and Prague yeah. is really alien at this stage. Yeah, this is well before it was. Mm. You know. A stag, uh, a stag, stag night, no, stag Yeah, but it was really exceptional. And there were about 200 protesters on Wenceslas Square. Right. And the cops came in 
I have never seen people being beaten up like this. Oh, really? The cops came in from all angles, right? With dogs and battens and they clatter these people. It was really shocking. And I went to a bar at the bar called Uzlati Tigre. I remember one, which means the, the place of the golden tiger in, right. in Czech, right? Uh, Zlati is gold and the tiger is tiger. And yeah. Ooh is at that place, right? Yeah. And I sat down and I was really nervous. I was like 20 or 22, whatever age it was. I was kind of like... Afraid kind of, you weren't getting served. I was, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Give you two points. But I talked to the people beside So we started boozing. Yeah. I talked to the people beside us and they were saying, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There was some protests. Yeah. They were very cagey. And then they said to me, they said for every protester, there were three agents provocateurs of the state. They said, that's how it works. Right. Right. And they will identify those. And they said to me, those people said to me, look, this regime is here to stay. Let's just drink up, talk about whatever, music, football, love, poetry, whatever. But don't talk politics to us because it'll just depress us. And the regime was gone three months later, completely gone. Wow. So everybody had said, this regime is here to stay. And yet, and and the the Czechoslovakian Communist Party was the most rigid after, in line with the East German Communist Party. Because of the Prague Spring, they'd they'd deposed Dubček, they'd imposed this really nasty, nasty regime. And the people were just, they said, look, this won't change. And yet, because it was changing all around them, it changed like that. Right. So I'm not sure this is going to happen in Cuba. Of course, no one knows what happened. But regimes do end with protests. That's how they end. Right, yeah. And they end because the grievances are legit. So it'll be very, very interesting. But look, let's go down to the Caribbean and get a Caribbean view of this. We talked to Marla. Marla's been in Cuba, was the Cuban economist for OBS for a while. She knows it inside out. So let's go down to Trinidad. Marla Ducaran, how are you, darling? Are you well? I'm good, David. Thank you so much. Thanks for waking me up so early this morning to, <laughs> to do this Saturday morning podcast and miss my surfing lesson. <laughs> oh, come on, lay it on thick, lay it on thick. Listen, Marla, a couple of years yeah. ago, remember we were chatting, you stayed with our mutual friend Desmond down there. You mooched yeah. around, you're trying to see what was happening in Cuba. You were reporting. I remember it was, it was for Royal Bank of uh, Canada at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. RBC at the time was was trying to see what can happen there although they had been in Cuba for like a hundred years before that but when the revolution happened you know every, every all foreign capital well not all but most of foreign capital and foreign businesses left and so the old sign was still there with the with the lion for facing the wrong way and you know that kind of it was beautiful like everything else in a time in a time bubble in Cuba right so tell me what do you think I mean uh you're looking at these protests. Obviously, we're we've just spoken to uh, Zoe, an Irish girl who lives down in Cuba. You know, pretty she's pretty cagey about talking about the regime because, after all, it's you know it's it still is a serious uh, police state in Cuba. You know, at a certain level, right? What do you think is going to happen there? And let's let's talk about the economy of Cuba. What's going on in the economy of Cuba? Well, of course, you know they've had an embargo imposed by the U.S. for you know five decades pretty much, right? Um, And I have to say to you, David, whether or not you are pro-regime or anti-regime, it is undeniable that the whole point of an embargo is to destroy a country and to bring it to its knees so that then they give in and do whatever you you would like them to do, which is to, uh, you know, follow a democratic process and and open up to foreign capital and, and free market you know, Washington consensus economic policy, basically, right? Yeah. So 
You can argue that they've mismanaged the economy. You can argue that their people are poor and suffering and have no freedom and have few choices and so on. All of that is true. But you have to remember these two things, that they're under an embargo for you know, half a century, and they have not collapsed the way Trinidad has had to go to the IMF and debt restructure. Barbados just had the most, the steepest debt restructure known to man in 2019, you know, and and so those are examples of how even when you are a free country, even when you don't have an embargo, we've mismanaged things in this region. And so to a certain extent, I feel like despite and against all the odds, Cuba has managed to a certain extent to feed its, you know, roughly what, 10 or 11 million people. That's that's quite a feat. No, it is quite an extraordinary feat. And sometimes I think uh, what we tend to do, certainly in Europe, is we compare Cuba to European countries. But we should actually compare Cuba to Jamaica. To Jamaica, for example. And you look Exactly. Let's talk about that. And I also want to talk about the players. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about Venezuela. I want to talk about Mm -hmm. Russia. I want Mm -hmm. to talk about China. Because you you mentioned the Cubans didn't go to the IMF. The Cubans themselves left the IMF. This is one thing that people forget that the Cubans stepped out. And this is part of the whole revolution. That was part of Fidel's idea that we do not want to be dependent on the IMF, which is a Yankee uh, controlled organization or the World Bank, et cetera. And and, 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 but they but they 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 were supported. I mean, by by Russia up until by the Soviet Union up until the collapse. Then they had those very, Mm -hmm. very, very, which they described themselves as the very lean years. And then Venezuela emerges Mm -hmm. as their backer. Venezuela and China emerge as their as their backers. So tell me about what you think's going on with the economy, how mm-hmm. it might stabilize, and the players in the background. No, you're right. I mean, of course, it was the Soviet Union first, and then um, I mean, in the past maybe 20 years or so, it's been it's been Venezuela. And they've what Cuba was doing was pretty much getting free oil from Venezuela, refining it and then exporting it. And that's how they earn their money. So basically, Venezuela was subsidizing, if you will, or giving subventions to Cuba. But in Venezuela itself, which is still, I mean, as far as I could recall, still has the number one um, levels of of proven oil reserves in the world, um, which, of course, makes it very attractive for many reasons. Venezuela is pretty much run by Cubans you know, from, from a political standpoint, Chavez invited, I mean, of course, you know, Chavez and, and, and Fidel were, were, were partners in crime, if you will. And, uh, you know, nobody knows how to manage an economy and keep people um, uh, under control like the Cubans do, right? Yeah. No, they're good at that. Um, of course. And so Venezuela is run pretty much by Cubans. And so what's what's happening is that a lot of what you're seeing happening in Cuba, even Haiti, is all linked to what's happened in Venezuela and what continues to happen where that regime is struggling to maintain control. Um, they've pretty much, they ha- they've had a balance of payments crisis. They've run out of foreign exchange for years. Um, and what they did was they mortgaged the oil in the ground to the, to the Chinese uh, so did the Chinese give them some liquidity? So in a sense, indirectly, what's happening in Cuba um, is all being influenced by by China. And that's the interesting thing as well, because, you, you you know, as as a regime, you say, you know, I don't want to be dependent on the Yankees and their Washington consensus. But then what, what you end up doing is you just become dependent on somebody else, you know, which I mean, if you think about it, that's not a solid philosophy or ideology 
you know. But 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 if mm-hmm. if, if but but this is the interesting thing because if China wants the Cuban regime to to remain in place, it will. This is the interesting of thing. Of course, but this is what's happening in Venezuela. I mean, Venezuela has collapsed. Ten years they've collapsed and they're still going. They haven't gone to the IMF because this is not what 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 people of this mindset do. And so they go to the Chinese. The Chinese give them liquidity. The Chinese um, manages the economy as well and 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 seizes assets and takes over assets. Um, and this is what's happening in Cuba. You get this sort of um, you know this thinking that. We keep people on their knees so that they're dependent and they're busy trying to find food every day so they don't have too much time to protest. Now they protest, they're protesting. But a lot of this is, you know, I think not going to last very long. I think, of course, they use force. Um, they also use economic incentives. So, for example, the Cuban government has announced that they're not going to, 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 put, to put, maintain quotas on the amount of um, goods sent from family members of um, the U.S. To, to Cuba, for example. But the thing is, at the end of the day, this embargo is what has driven Cuba. And now, of course, there is a, a, an embargo on Venezuela, as you know. And this, um, these embargoes is what drives these countries even more into the arms of the Chinese and to a certain extent, the Russians as well. And so I think that unless the embargo is addressed, you really will not have a fundamental shift. We will muddle along with the Chinese giving what liquidity they can give or they need to give, not to transform your country, not to make your country economically stable, to keep a level of instability where people are always in a frenzy trying to find food and and so they don't have time or wherewithal to protest too much. And you just keep them, you know, stuck. And, and dependent on the state. And that is not going to change fundamentally, regardless of the regime, in my view, unless you remove the embargo and unless people then have choice. So before, before, we, before we conclude, because I, I, I think that your point at the start is the, the embargo is designed to destabilize. Okay, so just, yes. so the embargo is that no Cuban can export anything to the United States and any company that is involved with Cuba can also be blacklisted by the United States. That's the embargo. Yet they can import stuff from the United States. Some stuff, particularly food. That's that's the the status quo. You came back, I remember, about three or four years ago when you came back from Cuba and you called me and you said, the potential there is huge. You see, you've got to understand, David, that Cuba is massive in the Caribbean context. It's a a monster. So give me a sense Mm -hmm. of what the potential of Cuba could be. I think in the first place, from an agriculture standpoint, I mean, we in the Caribbean have a real challenge with agriculture. And, um, you know, we're so small, we don't have economies of scale in most of our countries. It's really only Suriname, Guyana, and Cuba, um, Dominican Republic, and Haiti to a certain extent that have the kind of scale that we can really feed ourselves as a region. But Cuba has done a good job of maintaining its agriculture sector because it had to. Right. I mean, I've never seen so many mangoes as I have in Cuba. Right. Um, But of course, there's been little investment and in infrastructure and in the industry. So it's inefficient. But I think that if if the embargo was to be removed and you have all of this land and you have all of this relatively cheap labor and you can put in some investment and, and make 
agriculture more efficient. I'm not just talking about agriculture in terms of consumption, but even tobacco. And we know that they're a huge benchmark and outlier as it relates to their tobacco industry. And it's a, it's a center of excellence, if you will, globally, their tobacco industry. And I think that that's one of the, to me, the biggest areas of potential in Cuba but also Cuban people are quite educated in terms of their literacy rate. And you have lots of, uh, of underemployed talent in Cuba. You have so many doctors who are taxi drivers in Cuba, right? Because that, that way they can make dollars. Could And I, I give you a perfect example. I remember once talking to the head of the hospital here um, in Barbados, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And he said to me, oh, you know, we got all of these new Cuban doctors in and they're amazing. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, explain to me. He said, you know, they are so un unaccustomed to using diagnostic equipment that they can pretty much look under your eye, look at your tongue, you know, say, ah, and, and you know, with a, just a few of, of their skills, they can diagnose what other doctors rely on all kinds of tests to diagnose. They're just, they're really that good because they've had to to survive with nothing. Yeah. So can you imagine you open Cuba up, you remove the embargo, you allow Cubans to move around, you allow them to live and to establish enterprises. I mean, I think the potential is enormous as well for them to export their talent, which the government does. Huh? This is a huge source of income for the government. They send their doctors out and they pay their doctors 20, 30 US a month. But the, like, for example, they send them to, to Brazil and the government of Brazil pays the government of Cuba loads of money. Um, so they already, it's an industry. But could you imagine if these people were able to go out and work, make money and send that money back home in, in the form of remittances? That's also a huge potential, I think. And it's something we need in this region because we don't have the, the kind of talent that resides in Cuba. And then finally, I think if you can open Cuba up as a tourism destination, I mean, when you go to Cuba, David, you know this very well. There's no place like Cuba, right? Yeah, you're <laughs> and right. You either love you it right. or you hate it. You either love it or you hate it. Some people absolutely hate it because it's just too basic for, for them. But when you want to go and see somewhere that's it's it's almost like suspended reality. Like you go to Disney World and Har you go to Harry Potter land and you feel like you're on a, on a different planet. When you go to Cuba, you feel like you're on a different planet. Like you can't imagine that this, you know, you, you've been transported a hundred years back. And so I feel from a tourism perspective, if they can really open up and people can have their Airbnbs as well as your five-star hotels, uh, you know, I think there's just enormous potential on those three areas for Cuba, if you can just remove this embargo and just let these people live, man, then, you know, Cuba could be, I think, honestly, I think Cuba can become a real bright spot in this region. It has enormous potential. And the people there, they're so talented, absolutely talented. These people throw away nothing. They fix everything. They can just show us a whole new way of doing things that I think um, we need because it's very sustainable. That's the one thing. When you talk about sustainability, Cuba is the most sustainable country on earth, I think. Marta, we'll leave it there. Fantastic stuff. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao, David. See you, Marta. Bye. Bye. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Marla, again, has just amazing insights. Yeah, she has. I, I actually, you know, let them live, man. I love that. But the interesting thing I she said there is Cuba is the most sustainable, possibly the most sustainable country in the world. But you can actually see that with their recycling everything. out of out of everything out of necessity as opposed to any anything other. Yeah, uh, no, it's 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 an amazing thing. Like those cars that keep going. Yeah, yeah, and the tractors that keep going. And if you go down to the countryside, everything is recycled, is tinkered around with. You give those people an opportunity, that place is going to take off. Like. Yeah. Gangbusters, you know, and and she is right. The Cubans are unbelievably talented. You know, imagine a country that has been operating under its potential for seventy years, mm. and imagine what could happen to that. But again, it comes it's down, a little bit like Ireland. It is exactly. You know, when we were when, saying when, that it, when you when we opened up, yeah, things changed here. But it's up to the Americans, and I think the embargo, what Marla said, is designed to destroy the country. And there's a vindictiveness within which the Americans operate in Cuba. And you really feel it. And it's David and Goliath. You know, it's, 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 it's this tiny country. Yeah. 11 million people against the United States. It would be wonderful to see a change in the embargo, but John, I can't see it. They, they want regime change. That's what the Americans want. Yeah. And then, of course, if they get that, they might destroy the place like they've done to parts of Mexico and parts of, you know, other parts of the Caribbean. Well, as you said earlier, it might also be a Prague Spring situation. Yeah. The Havana Spring. We will leave it there, John. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. 